Preaching of God's Word then is in Psalm 51 and verse 5. This is, as we've considered over the past couple of weeks, a Psalm of David that was penned after Nathan the prophet had come unto David when David had, as the title says, gone into Bathsheba. We give our attention to verse 5. After David had confessed his actual transgression, verse 4, we have here his word, Psalm 51 and verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Notice that verse 6, which we'll consider, Lord willing, if not next, the week after, contrasts what we are by our sin with what God desires. He desires truth in the inward parts. And so God is not just interested in your outward manner being transformed to some outward beauty, but he desires the inner man to be beautified by holiness. And as we rejoice to know, David goes on to say in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. So as to get a sense of where the psalm is going. But this afternoon we give attention to verse 5, where David is, as it were, tracing the activity of his sin to its source. And he finds it deep within himself. You'll be familiar with questions that are asked today. Perhaps they've been found upon your own lips. Why would he do such a thing? Or perhaps, how could he do such a thing? It's not without warrant for asking. You remember in the scriptures, we have the question, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? And so it's a right question as it were an exhortation to us. You know, what am I thinking to consider going down this path contrary to the will of God? And yet the scriptures actually supply us an answer to those questions. When we see the heinous actions of men, or even in our own conviction, we wonder at our deplorable behavior and we wonder, why is it? How is it that I could have done or thought or said such things as were done? When flagrant and heinous sins are committed, they often give rise to these thoughts of great confusion. Well, here is something to consider. David, a man after God's own heart, David, a man taken from caring for sheep and unknown of to be raised up as uh, the great king that he was. David, who was afforded all manner of privileges and deliverances and blessings. David, who was used as a man to order and organize the kingdom of God and to see that it would function according to the mind of God. David, who would be a forerunner of his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is now found guilty of adultery. He's now found guilty of murder. And if you read, as we read some weeks back, the narrative, it is astounding how he goes on for at least nine months in this course. And so hauntingly absent is any note of his seeking of the Lord. In fact, in the chapter, the only thing that's noted is at the very end of the chapter, This thing displeased the Lord. How is it that David could be guilty of such actions of wickedness? Well, the text supplies it to us. And remember, it's David who is supplying it to us. He says, behold, look, pay attention. I was shapen in iniquity. The word shapen has this notion of twisting as if you have strands that you're twisting together as fabric. So some of you will be familiar with looking at yarn and you can look at yarn and you can unravel it. But if you have a strand of yarn, everything woven together is part of it. Or you can think of a fabric and that's woven together. That's the notion of what David is saying. My very fabric is bound up with iniquity. It's not accidental to me. It's not something that is beside me. It's not something outside of me. It's actually within. 
I was shapen, twisted together in iniquity. This word iniquity has to do with depravity or corruption. And it's a different word, but it has as well something of a notion of being twisted or crooked. And so you can think of how sometimes we speak of people and say, that's a twisted plot. That's a twisted action. It's not going down the straight and narrow. It's corrupted and out of the way. You can think children of bone, your skeletal structure. And when things are lined up and in joint, everything functions as it should. But so soon as something is out of joint or broken, there's pain and it's corrupted and so on. That's physical. Uh, But here it's spiritual. My soul is twisted. My soul is crooked. My soul is depraved. It's given to desiring what it ought not to desire. It calls evil good and good evil. That's moral corruption. And David says, look, that's from what I am. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. The word sin is that which misses the way it goes in the wrong direction. Instead of going straight on, it veers off its course. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. In the Hebrew as well as in the English, it's not saying the act of my mother's conceiving me is what was sinful, but rather at the very beginning, at the very moment of my conception, I was already in a state of sin. Now, all of this is given as part of David's confession, which is rather instructive that David isn't just one who sort of confesses the act and then passes by the source of it, but he traces the act to the source in an act of true grace. He's crying out, as we've seen, for mercy. He's confessing his sin. He's acknowledging his transgression, his sin, and so on. And he acknowledges what he's done, which is wicked, but he traces it to the source, the origin of his action. And it's this which presents to us the doctrine of what's known as original sin. Original sin is not talking about the first sin that Adam committed, but rather the origin within us of our sin, the very nature and constitution of our being, which is bound up with depravity and so leads to all actual transgressions, as our catechisms say, that proceed from it. The point that David is making is that since the fall, he, as well as all mankind, is corrupted in sin from the beginning of his being. So soon as he is conceived, he is indeed a human, but a sinful human. In other words, you can see this in just sort of day-to-day experience. No one has to have classes on lying or stealing. No one has to have classes on lusting or coveting. These things are bound up in the heart of the person. And so the person sins because he is sinful. This is, of course, directly opposite of the world's message today. The world's message is ultimately man is fundamentally good. And so his desires are to be trusted. His desires are to be pursued. If he wants something and delights in something, well, it comes from a good source and therefore should be pursued. If he wants this, he should pursue it because his heart is good. And of course, the world coddles itself and comforts itself and pillows itself in such teaching and ridicules the church for holding forth the truth of what the scriptures everywhere assert and what history everywhere illustrates, that man from conception is corrupted and pursues wicked things. And so the scriptures say the heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. Who can know it? The verdict of the scriptures against man is clear and resoundingly loud, testifies that man since the fall is corrupt. Now, in context, David is confessing this and is doing so both as an acknowledging of where his act of sin came from and as an acknowledgement of what he needs forgiven. This is rather instructive for us. We not only need forgiveness for 
the activity of our sin, but the very fact of our corruption itself. That this is sinful and worthy of condemnation. Here's the point. Fundamentally before God, since the fall, there's no such thing as one who is truly innocent. In the Christian church, the activity of the administration of baptism is one display of this. Circumcision of a child of eight days old under the old covenant is a testimony that even the child is in need of the uh, renewing and saving grace of God. And when it is we discover such horrid acts of sin committed by ourselves or others, and we're tempted to ask, how could I, how could he, how could she do this thing? Though we are right to stand aghast at the activities of men and are right to condemn them, we have an answer. Here's why it flows from the fountain of corruption. Well, to help us see this and its relationship to the text, consider three things. Firstly, the beginning of man's corruption. Secondly, the nature of man's corruption. And thirdly, the effect of of man's corruption, the beginning, the nature, and the effect. Well, firstly, then the beginning of man's corruption. Before we get to the beginning of man's corruption, it's worthwhile considering the beginning of man. And this will help us see that it's not God who is the author of sin, or it's not God who forces one to be sinful. There's a mystery, of course, something that is not fully able to be comprehended by us, but when we look at man as created before the fall, we see one who is good. Indeed, there is but one time in the history of the world where we can say there was one who never knew sin, at least for a season. So if you look at Genesis, of course, in chapter 1, God is creating the heaven and the earth, and he comes Throughout the six days, and finally in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. And so, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And so, it's instructive, of course, it's not just the male who has the image of God, but male and female. There's a difference as Genesis 2 and Subsequently, Genesis 3 and other passages will display, but the difference is in role and in one sense function, but it's not as to the essence of their being. Man as male and female are made after the image of God. And it's in looking at this before sin enters into the world that God, verse 31, sees everything that he made and behold, it was very good. This includes man. Man, as we're told elsewhere in the scriptures, was made upright. That's what man was. He was made not only upright as standing upon two legs, an erect creature that walks around, but he was made upright in righteousness. He was one who held fast the truth. And yet, as so quickly we read in chapter 3, man is led astray. The woman is deceived, and then Adam receives of the Uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil forbidden him and he does eat and is sealed in a state of sin and misery now the point is when man was made he was made upright he was made one who walked in fellowship with God there's this dissonance that hits us in Genesis 3 when God as it were draws near in the cool of the day to fellowship with his image bearers and what do we find Adam and Eve doing they fled his presence They're covering themselves, cowering in their shame. They feel the pricks of conscience that they have done that which was forbidden. And God calls out to them and in doing so both reproves, but also holds forth the promise of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's much there that we could consider with much benefit and have on previous occasions. But notice, whereas man was made upright, He has sought out many inventions. And this is what David is testifying. David is one who is born after the fall. And it's illustrated, of course, when Cain uh, kills Abel. And so we see this brokenness of humanity. 
And we find, of course, as we read earlier in Genesis chapter 6, that this is what characterizes man throughout the world. In other words, original sin is not a cultural issue. It's not as if this group of humans raised and trained in this region with these instructions and this type of uh, culture will then be sinful. It's that it's universal to mankind. And so, as we read in Genesis 6 verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice this language, it's very expressive. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Brethren, try and take that description and twist that into something that says man at his heart level is good. Man is a good being. And of course we can say as made, man is good. But as fallen, man is given to wickedness. Someone might say, well, time out. We read here that the flood comes and, you know, washes the face of the earth and preserves Noah, who was a righteous man. Surely then, Noah, who's a righteous man, will have righteous offspring. And yet what we find is there's a different history. We find rather in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, that there's the testimony that sacrifice is offered up. And God says, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Notice, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so it is that man remains corrupt. It's Noah himself who will plant a vineyard and become drunken. And sin will continue throughout the ages, through our own age, to the age that Christ will return. The point is, The beginning of man's corruption is historically at the fall of Adam and experientially at our conception. We don't come from the womb of our mothers as those who must learn to be sinful. We come from the womb of our mothers, though living, yet dead spiritually. Remember what um, Paul said, for you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And so by nature, as fallen, man is a corrupt creature. It's part of his very fabric. Remember the expression that David uses in Psalm 51 verse 5, I was shapen, I was twisted in iniquity. The fashioning of the fabric of my being in my mother's womb was a fashioning of corruption and so on. This doesn't mean that we can't relatively speak of the innocence of children And so we talk at times of, you know, this was an innocent victim. We're speaking in terms of society. This child has done nothing to warrant the treatment of this abuser. But we cannot speak of one who is uh, natively innocent in the view of God, because within we are a corrupt thing. Brethren, this is a most fundamental teaching for us to understand Man himself, the problem facing man, and the only solution that can be found. For if we err on this, we have erred at a foundational level and enter into a different realm. So consider, if instead men think that the beginning of man's corruption is at some age of accountability or at some commission of a grievous sin, they have as their understanding this notion that man is you know, speaking before God, good and noble. And his great need is just to continue and press on in that noble thing that he is. The divine spark within them just needs to be protected and cultivated and they'll be fine. This is the world's view today that man is natively good and the evil that is spoken of in this world is Uh, not something that is native to man since the fall. It's something learned. It's something that is uh, rather extraneous and uh, added on. It's not something bound up. And if that's the case, brethren, we can see that we don't need a supernatural and sovereign salvation because the problem is not native to us then. 
It's outside of us. We have then the power through a few things to sort of overcome. But if you and I are dead in the corruption of our sins, we stand in need of another one saving us as we read in Ephesians 2. Well, the beginning of man's corruption. Secondly, the nature of man's corruption. We see that it began and it begins at conception. But what is this corruption more specifically? We can note several things from our text. First, we can note that this corruption is a sinful corruption. Now, we might think those things are uh, synonymous and expressive of the same thing, and they can be. But we can talk of a physical corruption or deformity. So the scriptures will speak of one who has a crooked back. We can speak of those who have deformities. And those are, in one sense, physical corruptions. But the corruption that is before us is not the physical sort, but the spiritual sort. This is the idea of iniquity. It's perversity. And so sometimes we think and we hear the word perverse, per, perversion or perversity and perverse, and we only attribute that to sexual things. But the word itself has to do with twisting, corruption. And so there is sexual perversion, but there are all manner of hosts of other perversions. And so we can have a perversion toward worship, wherein we corrupt and pervert the purity of God's ordinances. We can have a perversion of morality, where we call good evil and evil good. You notice that David says uh, in verse 5 that he was shapen in iniquity. Iniquity was uh, woven, as it were, with him, this corruption. And this is expressive of that inward disposition of fallen men to uh, unto evil. You can see this quite simply in Romans chapter 8 when Paul specifies uh, the nature of this corruption under the uh, expression of the carnal mind. In chapter 8 and verse 7, he says, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice it doesn't say they simply don't or they will not or whatever else, but the expression is they don't have the ability because their soul is fashioned unto, fastened rather, unto a course of sin. They love sin. Now, you can Understand, of course, this doesn't mean that they commit every sin imaginable. Every single individual isn't committing the same sins. And some are more respectable than others. And some are more outwardly, socially uh, honorable than others. But remember that sin is not just measured by the heinousness of the act or desire. Sin is any want or of, uh, of righteousness or transgression Uh, to the law of God. So any want of conformity, any lack of conforming and conforming to his law or any diversion or diverting from his law is sin. And what the scriptures testify is that this is true of all mankind. Their hearts are set upon not fulfilling God's law or transgressing God's law such that they are at enmity with God. It is not subject to the law of God. Now, this, of course, gives expression to uh, why it is in our society so few truly rejoice in the law of the Lord. It's not a cultural thing. It is a natural thing, a sinfully corrupt thing. And so why is it, think of this for a moment, that men can laugh while they sin? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that men can find sin pleasurable? It's not because sin is in and of itself pleasurable. It's akin to finding your broken arm, which is radiating pain, as a happy thing. Who in the world would find that pleasurable? Someone who is out of touch with reality. Someone who's not 
functioning well. Their brain isn't firing as it should. Their synapses aren't working well. Their nervous system isn't working well. Who is it that can laugh at profaning God's name? It's someone whose soul is twisted, perverted, corrupted. Brethren, that you or I should be able to laugh at sin still is a testimony that not all things are as they should be. It is a sinful corruption. And notice as well, the nature of man's corruption is that the sinful corruption impacts the whole of man. And so it's not just that it impacts his memory or it impacts his understanding, but it impacts his will and his desires. It impacts his heart. The whole of all that he is is indeed impacted by sin. This is where we get the expression total depravity. It doesn't mean that man is as depraved as he can be. We can take emblems of wickedness like Hitler, for instance, and as godless as that man was, we can imagine him doing far worse than he did even with his actions in the Holocaust. What the doctrine of the scriptures means when we speak of total depravity is that the whole of man, all that man is, all of his faculties, all of his thoughts, all of his desires are tainted and corrupted by sin. It's not that he is as bad as he can be. It's that all that he is, is corrupted by sin. So you remember the expression of Genesis 6 and verse 5 which stands still, of course, touching upon men today. That it's not just, well, some of these and some of those and some of these other faculties, but it's very strong when it testifies that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the portrait. Brethren, think of this for a moment. If you could paint your heart apart from grace, that's it. That's what would be colored. That's what would be presented. And this is why the world in its depravity resists such a testimony. Well, some men are bad, but really not that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, relatively speaking, one may not be guilty of so many actual sins as Hitler, but understand this for a moment. The same heart that Hitler had that led him to those heinous actions is the heart that is found in each of us that were it not for God's mercies and grace, we would be unleashed to commit far worse sins even than he. The majority of the world, and dare I say, the majority of confessing Christians do not believe that to be the case. David who was a man after God's own heart, sees this quite clearly. He's been humbled and abased before God, and he is without hesitation ready to say, here's the source. It's not Bathsheba's fault. It's not this person's fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not society's fault. It's my issue. Sometimes in culture, sins are said to be the sins of the culture. And we can be you know, accurate in saying the culture sometimes cultivates a proclivity to certain things. But we ought never overestimate the fact that in the best of cultures, there have been the worst of sins. Because you cannot cultivate sin out of the heart. One of the great problems of the Victorian era was that there became this blending of high society and Christianity. So to Christianize a culture became in some sense synonymous with just teaching that culture to dress well, to be dignified and civil. There's a need to go to wayward cultures and teach them these basics. But brethren, civilization is not the same as salvation. And we can learn to dress well and speak and behave in good manners. We can learn to eat finely cultivated foods and so on and, you know, respectable carriage and the way we walk and speak and other such things. But all of that can be the dressings upon a dead soul still. David is helping us see 
the real problem facing ourselves and all mankind, that from the inner fabric of our being, there is the corruption of sin impacting all that we are and all that we do. Now, before we move on, it's worthwhile seeing that the impact of this sin remains even in the believer. David was a believer. David doesn't just say, listen, this is something that was true of me and, you know, is cut off and no longer has influence. He's confessing it. He's tracing his actions to that source. But we might wonder and say, but what about, you know, the fact that God removes a stony heart and gives a living heart? What about the fact that he creates us and makes us a new thing in Christ? All of that's true, and we give God thanks for that. But you'll notice that in the scriptures, there is this testimony that in this life, the effects of sin and corruption remain even in the believer. So in Romans chapter 7, you see this at verse 18, when Paul speaks of uh, this struggle and trial that he has within him. Verse 15, he says, that which I do... I allow not. And for what I would, that is what I will or would do, that do I not. So he finds this crossing up of his desires and his actions. And he says, what I hate, that do I. And so notice he speaks of, verse 17, sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Now, some have said in recent days that this is not the description of a believer, but it's Paul hearkening back to his pre-converted days. But you notice that Paul is speaking in the present tense. Paul is testifying of his own agonizing reality, and he testifies of this present warfare When we speak of spiritual warfare, sometimes we're prone to think just in terms of evil agents, the demons, and ourselves. But a large aspect of spiritual warfare is actually in the war of one's own soul, what Paul is here describing. And so notice he says, verse 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God, after the inward man. Now, brethren, think of that for a moment. That cannot be the expression of an unconverted and unregenerate man. There's no one unconverted that can say in truth, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But he says, notice this, I see another law in my members. In other words, the believer has these two warring principles at work within him. So there is the true and gracious spirit-wrought change that now makes the believer love and delight in the law of God and yearn for, and by grace, increasing more and more, uh, perform that which is honoring to God. And yet, there is alongside that another principle at work that is warring against the law of my mind. And so sometimes you'll hear people say in an uninstructed simplicity, the Christian is no longer sinful. Brethren, the reality is the Christian is now gracious and has by the Spirit of God the ability to overcome sin But he still in this life has sin within him. We're praising God that it is no longer the master ruling over our heart, but it is that which often is at work seeking to bring into captivity my members. And we rejoice that there is a day coming when the full deliverance will be provided us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But one other example of this is in the book of Galatians in chapter 5. Galatians in chapter 5. There, Paul again is giving expression of this to believers. And he says in verse 16, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice 
there is a pursuing of the Spirit's work within us that then allows us to conquer the desires of the flesh. But notice this expression, the flesh lusteth. It is actively desiring against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. There are two desires at work in the believer, the Spirit's production of true and holy love and longing for what honors God. That's at work in the believer's life. And yet in the believer's life, there is still this warfare of desiring what is contrary. How does the believer then overcome? Well, the believer overcomes by the increase of the Spirit's grace, bringing more and more uh, the desires of that gracious heart planted in him unto fulfillment. So even the believer knows still the effect of this corruption. This is why David was able to sin so wickedly as he did. This is why Peter would deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And later, even in this book, Peter would uh, capitulate for a season to Judaizing uh, tendencies which Paul had need to reprove. This is why, by the way, if you are a believer, that you sin. And you know that struggle and that warfare which so humbles and shames and abases us. And some Christians, as it were, throw their hands up in the air and say, who cares? What's the big deal? Don't make a big deal of this. Well, if that's the case, rip up Psalm 51 and throw it in the trash can. The Lord has placed this psalm in his praise to remind us to confess our sin, not just our actual sin, but our original sin. Because what happens when we confess it is the blood of Christ is being applied to the spring of our soul to purify and cleanse and to make pure that which flows from it. And so the more that we cultivate this confessing as David is, the more we apply, as it were, the blood of Christ to the source, the fountain. So children think of it this way. You can have a creek, you know, running in uh, a park. And you can look at it and, you know, someone can come out and take samples and say, well, this creek is corrupt. Well, you could try as you might. Perhaps you could take certain aspects of the water in buckets and you could purify it. You could boil it. It's pure. You could, you know, drop certain things in it. It becomes pure. But what if you went to the very source of the creek, the spring, and you were able to purify the spring, that means then that everything that flows from that is now being purified. And what the blood of Christ applied to our original sin is doing is increasingly purifying our desires so that the desires which are corrupt are being forgiven and purified. So the nature of man's corruption, which leads us then lastly to the effect of man's corruption. Much of this has been, if not explicitly, at least implicitly acknowledged. But to be clear, one effect of this corruption native to man since the fall is that man by nature is contrary to God. We saw this, of course, as the carnal mind is enmity with God. Notice in Romans chapter 3 at verse 10, Paul cites various passages and he says in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And this idea is repeated in the various descriptions. Verse 11, there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are all together, they are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. And it goes on and on testifying of all these things. And one aspect of the Lord clarifying his law is so that the world would understand this. Notice verse 19. It speaks of the law, and it was given that those under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Have you ever been sharing the gospel with someone and course, before you can really make headway with the gospel, you have to make headway with them understanding their need for the gospel. And as you do that, maybe you've encountered that sense of, well, you know, are you saying that I'm that bad? 
you know, do I really need someone to die for me? Sometimes the cross of Christ is ridiculed by the unbelieving world to say, why would such a thing need to happen? You know, we're not really that bad. The Lord gives his law and by the brilliant light of the law gives objective witness against us to say, look again and consider well your transgressions and then realize that you stand guilty before God. Well, where does all that come from? It comes from a heart that is corrupt. It comes from the spring of man's being. And this, of course, leads to all actual sin. Thus, David, he's tracing this backwards. So he's going from his sin with Bathsheba, acknowledging his transgression. And he has, as it were, looking at the stream of his life and says, Behold, here is the fountain. Here is the spring. Christ does something similar when he's speaking of what corrupts man. In Matthew's gospel, for instance, in chapter 15, we read Christ uh, reproving the Pharisees' view of what corrupts, which, by the way, is the world's view of what corrupts. What corrupts man is what comes into man or upon man or surrounds man. But notice Christ sees more clearly. He says in verse 18 of Matthew 15, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. It comes from within. There's the problem. It's within. And it leads to all of these sins. How could such a man do that? Here's how his heart is corrupt. How could such a woman say that? Here's how her heart is corrupt. How could a parent abandon their children? How could a wife commit that adultery? How could these things take place? Because the heart is desperately wicked. There's the problem. If the problem were only outward, then an outward solution would be sufficient. If it were just, well, it's that they're uneducated, then education would be the savior. If it were just they're uncultured, well, then civilization would be the savior. But you see, neither education nor society and civilization can reach to and renew the heart. That's why the need isn't learn how to dress well and, you know, abstain from these kinds of crass sayings and so on. It's not those things which save the person. The heart must be renewed. Man's sin, in other words, showcases his need for supernatural salvation. This is why when Christ is speaking with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, you'll remember, he says, except a man be born again, born from above. He cannot see the kingdom of heaven, except a man be born again, born by the washing of the Spirit, and so on, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. His nature is the problem. And so his nature must be changed. What's the effect of man's corruption? We can say, in one sense, it is that man has need of a Savior outside of himself in order to save himself. And so as we close, we can look at Psalm 51 and we put it in context as a confession and an appeal to God for his mercy. And you'll notice that he's been pleading, I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is ever before me. But as we noted, he begins his word with have mercy upon me, be gracious to me, pardon me, cleanse me, wash me. And what we see here is that the believer as well as the unbeliever, has need in his appeal to the Lord to trace his sins back to the source and to say, Lord, even there, in my soul, in my heart, is where I need forgiveness and washing. What good does it do to wash, as it were, just the extrinsic things when the inward is the problem? There are some physical diseases 
that will manifest with outward sores. And so one could be ignorant to think, well, I'll just get some you know, uh, antibiotic cream and put on the sores and that will take care of it, put a few band-aids on it, and eventually it will run its course. But you see, to treat the outward manifestation and to ignore the inward cause is only to guarantee that the problem will persist. Now, one could bandage the whole body so that the outward sore is no longer seen, and yet it will be festering, of course, within. This is the deception of every false way. Whether it's false religion, think of Islam and all of its idea of submitting and changing and doing that, don't get, you know, don't get into drunkenness, do this and so on, and whatever the abuses of some, there are principles within Islam that you look at and say there's nobility to it. And you can see that in Mormonism, who is characterized as family first people, Mormons are. And we can be impressed with their steadfast commitment as married couples and parenting their children and other such things. And we can see these false religions and be impressed with the outward deportment and display of what they are. But there's a fundamental problem with every false religion. It doesn't reach to the root of the matter. Roman Catholicism fails to reach to the root of the matter. Every false religion, liberal Protestantism, fails to reach to the root of the matter. Full-bloomed Arminianism fails to reach to the root of the matter. The root of the matter is this. The soul of man is dead in sin. And there's nothing that man can do to remedy himself. There's not a prayer that can be prayed in his own strength. There's not an activity that can be performed in his own strength that will ever bring that one unto salvation. If it's true that we stand corrupted within so that our thoughts and desires and imaginations of our hearts are only evil continually, how can we ever hope to save ourselves? The fundamental witness of this is that we have absolute need of the Lord God and His mercy and grace to say, you can't save yourself and you must come to realize that. But what you cannot do, I can. This is Paul's point. Ye who were dead in your sins and trespasses, you who were fulfilling the lust of the flesh and of the mind, you who are walking after the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, you who were corrupted and dead in your sins. Remember the transition. But God, who is rich in mercy, with His great love wherewith He loved us. You see, the beginning of salvation is divinely begun. It's not like jump-starting a battery by our activity. It's nothing that we can perform. It must come from God. If you're a young person and you've been trained in these things, you must see it's inadequate just to come to church. It's inadequate just to read your Bible. It's inadequate to pray in all these things. You must be doing those things because they're right. But none of them, by your use of them, is sufficient to give life to your soul. You stand in a desperate position of needing the God of heaven and earth to give life unto you, even who is dead in your sin. And the only religion that testifies of the true problem is the same religion that testifies of the true solution, which is salvation by grace alone. That word alone is the difference between false Christianity and true Christianity. There will be many who consider themselves Christians and say, yeah, we're saved by grace. And when you start to parse it and start to think it through and talk to them, they don't mean grace alone. They mean grace with my works. Brethren, the only solution to one corrupted by sin and dead in sin is no contribution of our own but the salvation of God given by grace alone. Brethren, here is a thing to marvel at, both the wickedness of man as fallen, but the wonder of grace given to man. 
if we could see physically the derangement and the ugliness of man's spiritual depravity, there's not one here who wouldn't gasp and become instantly disgusted with such displays of soul. And yet you and I are those who are touched by the same depravity. There are actions in this world that make us wish to look away, which cause us to shout out, to become inwardly angered by the display of wickedness. How much more so God, who is of such purity that he cannot look upon sin. And yet marvel at this. He who despises sin far more than you or I has been pleased to say, yet I set my love upon that one. And all of that which pollutes that one and corrupts that one, I will address solely because I have set my love upon him or her and have given my grace to that one through Christ Jesus. Nothing less than the supernatural work of God's Spirit is able and sufficient to save a sinner dead in his sin, corrupted by sin. And so, brethren, if you stand this day as one who is believing upon Christ, you have one to thank. It's not your reflection in the mirror. You may have cause to thank means that God used, a spouse, a friend, a pastor, a book. But fundamentally, you have God to thank that ever he looked upon you in your death in sin and corruption said, yet my love is upon you. And so I'll take you. I'll give you life. I'll wash and purify you more and more by degree in this life. But oh, brethren, consider this. On the last day, in perfection of glory, you know what it is to have the mixture of thoughts of purity and impurity. Can you imagine what it is to have no impurity, no corruption, no sin whatsoever? Brethren, that is what the Lord will bring into effect when it is he takes us unto himself and finally and fully cleanses us from all sin. And then we'll be able to say that whereas I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, yet now I am without iniquity and without sin. God be praised that whereas sin is far worse than you and I imagine, God's grace is far greater than our sin. May we look to him then for his grace. Would you stand with me for prayer?